Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, which provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives. Why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals about how they achieved success in the face of adversity. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're speaking to Joe Wicks, who became the nation's PE teacher in lockdown. His virtual workouts quickly gained him national treasure status, a Guinness World Record, and more than four million books sold today. But Joe had a very difficult start in life. His mother suffered from mental health challenges and his father was a heroin addict. His home life was tough and chaotic and he struggled at school. But he's incredibly positive about everything. What did you think, Alice? What I thought was extraordinary is how unjudgmentally was that he'd walked here he was talking about how he'd fasted for three days you know he hadn't had lunch yet he's obviously healthy himself but he's he's not telling us what we should be eating or drinking or even smoking he doesn't tell you what to do it's all about trying to get the best out of life even with his parents who are obviously incredibly difficult he's really devoted to them and loving of them and and really forgiving I think where I was very angry as a teenager I remember someone said to me once like you know, I know your, your dad's a drug addict, isn't he? Like, because you know that like parents and kids would be talking. And I was like, oh, I don't have a dad, you know, and I was really upset that I said it, but it's just the anger coming out because I was like, just a bit upset and a sort of ashamed and a bit embarrassed about it. But ultimately, my child has made me a really strong, stable parent. I'm like, all I care about is my kids. All I care about is being present. And I actually think that success for me is keeping my family together. He seems really determined not to be a victim of his circumstances. So he obviously did have an incredibly difficult time. His father was absent for long periods. His mother was obsessively cleaning the house. Every morning he had to hoover his room before he went to school. But he almost takes a strength from that. And he feels that it made him absolutely adamant that he wasn't going to become an addict. He was going to be healthy. He was going to be fit. And he wants everyone else to feel the same. I can see the children that are going through trauma because they're withdrawn, they're not smiling, they're unhappy, they're really anxious. And then the workout starts and they sort of, they warm up and then by the end of it, they're doing like star jumps and then they're smiling. And so that's what I'm trying to achieve is to let people know that you can use your body to shift your mindset and change your reality for a few moments. And and it is an, it is an important message. I mean, I love exercise, so I could see why he promotes it because... You know, we've got so many issues now, like, you know, there's the Zempic drug for people who are overweight. There are pills you can take if your mental health is bad. And it's all very pill-led in our society. And actually what he's saying is, you know, you need to get out there. You need to get into the park. You need to try and move. And even if you take very small steps, it could help you. I think that was my therapy. I talk about that a lot, you know, the PE and the exercise part of it. 
shaped my life. And that's really why I travel around Ireland and Northern Ireland and all these schools in deprived areas because I'm trying to teach kids that the answer to what you want really is you and your body and moving and exercising to, to, to deal with the fact that your mum is an addict or your dad is struggling. You know, it's a powerful tool for children to use. The other thing that I think is really interesting is when we spoke to experts about addiction and overcoming it and trauma of that sort in childhood, a lot of the scientists said that people who do grow up with addicts as parents often really want to take control over their lives and have a sense of order in order to balance the lack of order and the chaos that they had as children. He did talk about his next door neighbours where he's one of three boys and there were three boys next door and they suffered much more from having parents who were addicts. And I think what comes across with him is that they were very loving his parents. I think that also matters, that if you've got parents who really care, you know, whatever the circumstances, that can help. You know, we can overcome these things. It's the most important thing. There's probably a lot of parents out there that are struggling who think they're really failing their children. But what I would say is that if you love your kids and you support them and you give them affection, they will, they will forgive you. And, you know, they'll be more resilient than you think. We're sitting here with Joe, luckily not doing any burpees, talking about what we had for breakfast. And we can hear in the canteen next door everyone having lunch. So we're getting quite hungry. I haven't had lunch because I'm going to meet my brother after. So I'm going to catch up with my brother and have a little bit of dinner and watch a movie tonight. My little brother, George. So I like to spend time with them when I get, get a chance in London. And do you run around between appointments? I walked, actually. I, I wouldn't normally jump to an Uber, but I walked like 35 minutes over London Bridge because it was sunny and it was a nice day. But... It's nice getting a little bit of getting your steps in. And I talk about walkie-talkies. Well, if you ever get a chance to take a call on the move, you know, so let's say you've got a Zoom, but you don't see their face. We do something within the body coach team where we call it a walkie-talkie where you take the call on the go and you can walk 10 kilometres back to the office and everyone's energised. It's a nice little way of getting your steps in whilst being productive and having sort of good ideas. You had a kind of amazing effect during lockdown on children in Britain, really, and around the world, and actually got them moving and got them up and got them motivated. We want to take you back to your childhood and what it was like and what motivated you and what happened to you because you had a really extraordinary childhood full of love but also real complications, didn't you? Can we just go back to the sort of first memories you have of it? Yeah, I've been quite open around my sort of childhood and my journey because I think it's important to show where you've come from and I don't have resentment toward my childhood. I think actually it really gave me a lot of motivation and drive to want to be a different person also create a different life. But essentially, in a nutshell, from a very young age, my dad was a, a drug addict, so, you know, probably started off with softer drugs but eventually progressed to heroin so all I knew is my my childhood was my dad kind of in and out of rehab you know he was there one minute he wasn't the next when he was there he was completely out of it so although he was there there was no like physical or emotional support like love if you like because it was he's a zombie basically when you're a heroin you're a zombie right yeah so there's that which is tough being a kid around that and then my mum on the other side wasn't an addict but she did have extreme OCD so extreme housework I'm talking like every single day all day long along with anxiety and also eating disorders. She was anorexic and bulimic. So really what was mental health issues, I didn't know at the time. It just felt like chaos and a lot of instability. But I do always say to my brother, you know, how did we come out how we have, you know, versus my next door neighbor, which is a really sad story. But there's three boys live next door to us. One of them recently died of drug addiction. So it's like almost like we lived similar lives Mm -hmm. in a similar little council estate with paper walls. You could hear the arguments either side. But me and my brother Nicky went down a completely different route. We steered away from drugs. We were so scared of that life and what it did that we kind of made different choices. And so I think it came down to love. I think my mum's love specifically anchored us, I think, in that household. And we had rules and we respected her. 
you know, it wasn't a complete free-for-all. So I think that was a pivotal moment in my childhood, I think. And how did you first realise your father had addiction problems? Did you, was he very absent as a father? Did you kind of almost feel rejected that he was choosing the drugs over you? Yeah, I talked about that in my documentary. It was a feeling of like, why can't you get clean? Like, we're here, you know, mm. and why aren't we enough sort of thing? But, you know, I understand now. I understand my father a lot more than I did at the time. But I went through phases of sort of understanding that he was there, but then he'd be disappearing and there'd be an argument. And so maybe he relapsed and he's, you know, back into a rehab or he's living with his mum. It was chaos, you know, and a lot of coming and going, you know, police knocking on the door and that sort of stuff. And so I knew from a young age, I reckon I knew from probably six or seven years old what saying wasn't right. But then in my teenage years, that's when the anger came out. Because by that point, I'm exhausted. You know, I'm like, you're lying to me. You never tell the truth. You're always covering up. You wouldn't, you would never admit you're using unless I caught you with a, with a needle in your arm. That's the kind of, because drug addicts, are, there's a lot of shame and guilt around it, you know. So he can't sit there with me and say, you know, I'm struggling, I'm using again. But when my mum found out she'd kick him out, that he would never be able to use in the house. So he'd be gone. Do you know what I mean? Did you ever see him using at all? Or did you ever actually talk to him? No, I Honestly didn't personally see him, but I know my older brother, Nicky. So obviously I was a bit younger. My brother, Nicky, was 18 months older than me. So he talks a lot about, you know, seeing seeing things and, and, and being more aware. I remember certain, you know, smells, you know, I remember like the smell of kind of, you know, just paraphernalia around drugs. I remember like walking into my nan's house because he used to live there and just the smell and it just, it was like I just knew and he would never tell me the truth. But again, it's just when you're a drug addict, you're sneaky, you know, you're not telling the truth. You're There's so much guilt and shame around it that, my dad couldn't sit there with a seven or eight-year-old boy and say, like, oh, I can't deal with what's going on with my heroin addict. You know what I mean? And in hindsight, I look back now with a bit more compassion, and I think even now today, like, as an addict, he's never out of the woods. He's always, he's, you know, it's, it's, it's an up-and-down battle as an addict. But he's clean today, and we have a great friendship. And so I think the most important thing is that knowing that whatever your situation is now, it's not always forever, and it can change, and you can still have a positive relationship, even though it seems really chaotic and destructive you know, not every addict's going to be in that forever. You can come out of that, you know. So was he hugging you then quite often as well when he wasn't? Yeah, very loving, very affectionate. And also when my mum and dad argued, you know, they would always say at the end of it, you know, we're not trying to upset you or scare you. And that's the only thing I can think of because now I live in a very stable home life with my children. And I think I can't imagine screaming and shouting and punching the walls and stuff in front of my kids. Like I don't even like raising my voice in front of my kids. So the way I interact with my children is very different. But I don't, again, hold resentment or anger towards that. Because my mum was also, you know, my mum was had my she had my brother at 17 years old she left home at 15 got kicked out lived in a squat met my dad had a kid at 17 had me at 19 so you can imagine she was a young girl growing up so she was chaotic she didn't know what she was doing and so even when I think about the shouting and the swearing and the screaming like that was just how she was parented how she was treated as a kid and so again it's like I kind of broke that cycle because I don't repeat those behaviors with my children but it's, it's what I experienced it was my normal and I think maybe back then in the 80s and 90s parents hit their kids and screamed at them and pulled their ears in public like it was normal I just don't think now I think there's a, the whole thing around gentle parenting I think it's a relatively new concept right with books around how to interact with a toddler and their adolescent brain like there's things I know now that I didn't know as a kid and my mum certainly didn't so I think it was just an education thing and she always loved us my mum and dad always loved us and I think if you have that you can persevere through pretty much anything as a kid I think. Mm. And your mum also must have done a lot of the bringing you up on her own effectively. Did you feel incredibly protective of her or did you get frustrated when she was endlessly cleaning and tidying? I think I feel like a bit of a carer when I look back to myself you know just worried about my mum, worried about if she wasn't eating and seeing her be skinny and frail and then seeing my dad on the sofa and just looking sad like because it's not like a drug that's picking you up and you're running around buzzing and chatting like I could see the sadness in her, I could see it do you know what I mean? So 
it was tough, you know, always worrying about people. And I was, my brother used to say, you know, he was so scared if he caught my dad doing anything that he knew was, you know, was, was kind of, was leaning towards him using drugs, he would protect my dad because he didn't want him to get kicked out. So he'd hide it from my mom and then my mom would find out. Do you know what I mean? So I think Nikki had a different experience to me and we talk about this a lot, but again, you know, my mom was amazing. She's an amazing mom. She, she's raised three wonderful, gentle, loving, really caring men. Do you know what I mean? So somewhere along the lines, it, it worked out okay. But I remember once we had an argument, me and my brother were arguing in the kitchen about the cereal and she came in, banged her eggs together and poured the cereal over her head. So there's certain things I remember, but when I went to school, I just was a happy boy, you know, I just sort of blocked it out in a way. And what happened when she went away for five months? Because that must have been really discombobulating if your dad was already out of it a lot of the time. How did you all cope then? So I didn't even remember this. So I had a documentary film with BBC One and I asked my mum, like, you know, I remember you going away for a little while, but because she, she had such extreme, you know, OCD and really bad mental health issues that someone's like, you need help. And she's like, what do you mean? She had never even thought she needed help. And she told me she went away for five months. So my little brother, George, would have been, say, two years old. I was 12. And it's kind of like I would have been at secondary school, you know, I would have been just cracking on getting the bus to school and whatnot. And I, I don't remember. It's like a bit of a blur because that's a long time to not be with your mum. So he looked after you? So my dad would have looked after us, yeah. So, you know, my dad, he still managed. It wasn't like he abandoned us, you know. He, he still put dinner on the table and, you know, he still got us ready for school, got us to school on time. It, it wasn't like he was completely unavailable, but just on an emotional perspective, he says, you know, a lot of the time when you're an addict, you can't even love yourself. How can you really love somebody else and really be affectionate? I normally get really emotional talking about this, but actually I just see things differently. I'm much more positive about it because I understand addiction. Yeah. I understand that you need to be compassionate about this. And I think where I was very angry as a teenager, I remember someone said to me once, like, you know, I know your, your dad's a drug addict, isn't he? Like, because, you know, like parents and kids would be talking. And I was like, oh, I don't have a dad, you know, and I was really upset that I said it. But it's just the anger coming out because I was like just a bit upset and a sort of ashamed and a bit embarrassed about it. But ultimately... My child has made me a really strong, stable parent. I'm like, all I care about is my kids. All I care about is being present. And I actually think that success for me is keeping my family together. Time with my kids is way more valuable than putting my money in the bank for another holiday with them. Do you know what I mean? I think being present, and that's why, you know, we're homeschooling now. Like, we're homeschooling because I want to be around them and we're together every day. And my, my parenting style is very different to my mum and dad's, but I suppose I'm a product of that, you know, and so I've flip the script a little bit and I'm doing it a bit differently. And you talk about being a carer for your parents, but you must have been a carer for your two-year-old brother then. I mean, even if you can't remember it, you must have, you and your older brother between you somehow brought him up to a certain extent, didn't you? Yeah, I've just so I've just done a best man speech at his wedding two weeks ago where I showed some photos of him as a kid and I was like basically in the cot with him because we lived in a little house and he didn't have his own bedroom, so he'd basically just sleep around. He had a cot in my room and he'd sort of sleep around. But when he came into the world, I was 10 years old and I said in the speech, like, I needed someone to love then who wouldn't, just run away who couldn't abandon me and stuff so like I said you were like a little angel and I you, ca- you came into the world and you were like this ray of sunshine that was just every day I would run home to be with you I'd spend every minute of the day with you and I taught you how to ride a bike I taught you how to play football I changed nappies I I, I become a parent really at 10 years old because I was doing it all I was feeding his bottle changing his nappy so he definitely helped me become that nurturing paternal um being I think I loved him to death for like from the age of zero up to like 12 when he still wanted to hang out with me. We were best mates, you know what I mean? Then he, then he got into girls and football and it changed, but family's everything to me. Do you, have, you haven't ever had any formal therapy, have you? But you do think that talking about it's helpful. Do you think therapy would just be a distraction? I've never had a lot of formal sit-down therapy. I think, I remember obviously my mum my mum and dad both had therapy. My dad was in NA from pretty early age. So I remember like going to meetings and whatnot, but there was a couple of times I think maybe one of the schools arranged like a session with somebody, but... 
I wasn't that into it. I didn't think I needed it. Whereas my brother, Nicky, probably needed it more because he was very introvert. He bottled things up. Whereas I would be like, I'd say what I was thinking. I'd shout it out. I'd be very hyperactive and attention-seeking. I think for me, yeah, the exercise. So physically, I removed all of it from through sport and fitness. Okay. Whereas probably Nicky might have like, internalized it a bit more. I think that was my therapy. I talk about that a lot, you know, the PE yeah. and the exercise part of it um, shaped my life. And that's really why I travel around Ireland and Northern Ireland and all these schools in deprived areas because I'm trying to teach kids that the answer to what you want really is you and your body and moving and exercising to to, to deal with the fact that your mum is an addict or your dad is struggling. You know, it's a powerful tool for children mm. to use. And you were once so frustrated that you took a screwdriver and just dug it into the stairs. How did your parents react to that? Was that seen as a kind of cry for help or? Well, I mean, it was just chaos, isn't it? Like, I remember just one other story my mum told me is that we, I used to, so I was a bit crazy and I used to like get knives and throw them at the wall and stuff and try and stick them in the wall, you know, like, because when you're in a council flat, it's just plasterboard, really thin walls and stuff. And there was always holes in the door, you know, and I was think, why are there holes in the door? And it was always the bathroom door because it would be like, you know, mum and dad arguing. And so it was just an easy thing to punch because it was like a, it was almost like a little thin bit of ply. And that's a sign of, you know, probably the aggression and, and the fighting, right? But ne- it was never aimed towards us. It was more verbal and it was just, sh- it was just a shouty household, you know. But, you know, we can overcome these things. It's the most important thing. There's probably a lot of parents out there that are struggling who think they're really failing their children. But what I'll say is that if you love your kids and you support them and you give them affection, they will they will forgive you. And, then, you know, they'll be more resilient than you think. And actually, I think a lot of addicts want to control the world around them in order to sort of try and bring some order to that chaos. Do you think that's why you became so committed to sport, that you were almost trying to bring discipline and structure to your life? Yeah, I think I think maybe that is there's a, there's a maybe there's a good good kind of message behind that that you know everyone deals with trauma and, and childhood differently. So my dad's childhood trauma led to him using drugs to soothe himself and alcohol. My mum's childhood trauma led to her controlling her food, controlling the house, cleaning, scrubbing the floors three times a day, and making me iron my bed sheets and you know hoover my bedroom before school and after school. And like when you're seven years old, you think is this normal? But it was normal. That was my life. So. You know, it was, it was a lot of confidence. I'm arguing with her about that. I mm. couldn't bring friends home, couldn't wear shoes in the house. It was like an Ikea show home. The contrast of being wild and hectic and chaotic. But if you walked in, you're like, oh my God, what a pristine, beautiful little home life you've got. But yeah, sport and fitness, I think it was the physicality of it. Like, mm. let's say I had loads of stuff going at home and I was like stressed out. I couldn't go into school and say, oh, listen, my dad's a drug addict and my mum's this and that and police came around last night. I'd have to go in and just be a normal boy and crack on with school. Yeah. And so maths, English and science, I couldn't sit still. I was the one leaning back on my chair, trying to make everyone <laughs> laugh. Um, but when it came to sport and PE, the teacher loved me. They harnessed my energy. I let it out. And I knew that when I exercised, whether it was on my own doing like running or if it was a team sport, I just felt happier. Mm. And it's the same reason I exercise today. I'd, I don't exercise because I'm trying to like lose weight or what keeps me going every day is the mental benefits, the, the energy and the mood. And as a parent, like my default reaction is to scream, shout, swear, slam doors and walk out the house. So when I suppress that and try and be patient and calm when my kids are screaming, it takes a lot of energy for me, right? So I have to do the exercise because otherwise I find it hard to be patient. And so by doing the exercise and like smashing myself in the gym for half an hour, when I walk downstairs, the two kids bickering and fighting doesn't bother me as much. Do you know what I mean? So it's like a, it's like a stress release <laughs> yeah. valve. So at school, do you think your PE teachers got that? They had someone who was not going to go on to be sort of the famous PE teacher, but someone who really needed to let that go. And Because quite a lot of your teachers thought you'd probably end up in jail, didn't they? I think, yeah, I think people would have thought, you know, 
they were the kids from the naughty family. The parents weren't engaged. If mum did come down to school, it was to shout one of the teachers, you know, because they took one of the, you know, I remember one thing, my dad wrote me some letters from rehab and one of the teachers took it off me and I was so upset when I came to school. And so my, my memory is my mum came in and screaming, where's the letter? Effing and blinding. Cause all she wanted me to, was, you know, it's my letters. Hang yeah. on. I'm not going to cry. That was an emotional moment that yeah I just remember her coming and screaming trying to get this letter back that had been put in the bin because she just she she wanted me to have a dad and she wanted that relationship because she also didn't have her dad so she stayed with my dad for a long time why did they put it in the bin though it just teach her just old school and she didn't we reading it in class and stuff so she just threw it in the bin but it's just a letter you know when my dad would write letters from from rehab and stuff so it just meant a lot to me but yeah that was kind of my mum just being defensive and protective and trying to maintain a relationship with my dad but she says to me a lot you know we, they stayed together because she wanted me to have a dad it, mm-hmm. you know like it was an unhealthy relationship for both of them but you know in addiction you, you stay together and you try and fight it out and stuff but ultimately I think my mum just really wanted us to have a dad because her dad abandoned her you know she mm-hmm. was she was in a um, care home as a kid and her mum had a mental breakdown so you just see how like it all makes sense doesn't it mm-hmm. now it makes sense because I've had the conversations with her at the time I just thought my mum was mad and she just was angry at the world, but I understand what she's been through. So now when I see my mum, it's like, I see like the girl she was when she went through all that stuff and I, I'm just like way more understanding and mm. I, I get why she is how she Did you is. need attention, do you think? Was that part of it? Did you need it at school? And and even now, actually, because you get a lot of attention now, does that help in any way? It was actually quite overwhelming now. No, the irony is that like, obviously I didn't plan on becoming like a famous cook or fitness trainer, but there's obviously some element of me that liked attention or making people laugh making people feel good and so yeah if I look back as a kid I was hyperactive I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD but I'm sure I probably had elements because I all I wanted was someone to basically sit down and say what's going on mm-hmm. you know what's up what's the matter mm-hmm. what because when you're the naughty kid it's like they know and my mum said the same thing she was branded as a naughty kid and that was it she was always the naughty kid and so I got kicked out of English I got kicked out of maths and science so I couldn't focus yeah, but if you let me play sport all day, I would have been an af- I would have been an Olympian athlete probably. Mm. If you say, look, Joe's no good at maths and English. Leave leave him out. Go and put him in sport every day. <laughs> Which and, sport do you reckon? I mean, I was good at athletics. I was good at running. You know, I did eight hundred meters and the fifteen hundred meters. So maybe if you said, look, let Joe run all day every day. Or oh, you mm. could have had a team GB national athlete. Do you know what I mean? So I just think sometimes education, sometimes it's different. We we need different sort of learning styles for different children. And I wasn't really a naughty kid. I wasn't a mean kid. I was just an attention seeker and I was disrupted because I needed I needed someone to just pay me attention, especially male males, because it was just my mum. So I needed a male role model. And so my PE teachers were always men. They were young, they were fun, they liked me, you know, they wanted me in class. So yeah, I had a massive connection. And that's what really inspired me to go on to become a PE teacher. That was my goal. I mm. thought, I'm gonna be a PE teacher and I'm gonna make other kids, you know, enjoy exercise and I'm kind of doing it really now, which is weird. It's They've come full circle of now. Completely. Do you think there's a connection between the mental health mm. crisis in schools now and the cut in PE and the reduction in sport in schools and things like that? A hundred percent. I've just been on an amazing tour of Ireland and Northern Ireland. I visited 10 schools over four days. I run in, I do an amazing workout. And, you know, I realise that the schools that are kind of engaged in fitness, the ones where the parents also are bought in, you know, and, and it's an active kind of environment, that's where the change can happen. But you can't just rely on, you know, the PE teachers and that one or two hours of exercise a week. It's, it's about promoting activity throughout the week with the family. And all you need in, in the school, I say this a lot, is one champion of fitness, one person. It might not be a paid for PE teacher because we know now a lot of schools don't even have a primary school PE teacher. But you have like one dinner lady or someone who does a club on, on a lunchtime or an after school dance teacher. Like one person just to elevate, not everybody, but even a small percent of the school 
And then they start going, you know what, let's do the daily mile. And we walk, you know, someone's pushing that. And the mental health issue, I don't even look at it. I don't look at children as overweight. I don't look at their weight. I don't look at their obesity levels. It's really their mental health. And I look at it from a perspective of, you know, we need happy kids. We need healthy kids. And that's going to come through promoting activity and getting them moving because, you know, I'm speaking to teachers and heads of schools where the number of children with mental health and learning difficulties is increasing. Anxiety, kids self-harming, kids can't, kids at nine, 10 years old that can't be in a classroom, you know, and they need a special education support teacher. So it's complete, it's a really big issue that we need to talk about more, I think. And have you managed to get your mum and dad now into exercise? Because you go motorbiking with your dad and then you bought your mum a house and you're still really close to them, but are they doing your workouts? So my mum's got the app. And she loves it. You know, she's got a free subscription. I don't charge her. But yeah, she loves the app. <laughs> and I also got her Peloton exercise bike during lockdown, which she now says she just hangs her clothes on. But yeah, you know, she does keep active. She goes to the gym. And she also knows the same thing, that the exercise thing, she can control her emotions with exercise as opposed to starving herself and not eating or, you know, Or binging. cleaning the floor. Yeah, or cleaning. She's definitely, you know, she's in a much better position from that perspective. And yeah, my dad's, he's still into exercise. He does a lot of running. He's got a little dog, little French bulldog, so he gets out and stuff. He's not more, he's not so much into the weights and stuff. But ultimately, I think my career's kind of got everyone around me cooking a bit more and moving a bit more, mm-hmm. just kind of as a, as a product of watching me and stuff. And how did you get to university and to do sports management? Did anyone help you to do that or was it just totally self-motivated? When I was about 13 or 14, there was an outreach program from St. Mary's in Twickenham to like schools around Surrey, obviously to try and like one day entice children to one day maybe think, oh, I could go to university. So jumped on the minibus, looked round, and it was all the naughty kids. And I thought I'd been chosen because I was like good at PE and all that. And I'm going to St. Mary's as a sports college. But it was all the naughty kids who were probably on the path to like a less educational or maybe a little bit of a difficult path. And so what I realized, it was them trying to engage us in the concepts of, imagine if Joe could one day go to university. And I had never believed that. Mm. No one had been to university. I went to that university and had a look around and met some of the, the young sort of PGCE um, PE teachers learning to be PE teachers. And it was amazing because I left that day saying to my mum, I rang her, I said, mum, I'm going to come here one day and do sports science. I'm going to be a PE teacher at 14 years old. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did. I did a GCSE in PE. I did a two-year diploma at Nescott College, which is like a BTEC diploma. And I had a year out. Then I went to St. Mary's, did a three-year course in sports science. And that was literally my path to become a PE teacher. But I worked as a teaching assistant just to check it out, to think, am I cut out for it? And it was really hard, you know, it was really difficult. And it was, I didn't have the patience. I thought, I can't do it. What were you like with the naughty kids? Well, I was a teaching assistant in a, in a very challenging school. A lot of the children were speaking English as a second language and a lot of learning difficulties. And that. So I was in there. But I, I basically, what I realized was I, was I was fun and I loved being around them and they really liked me, but I couldn't discipline them. Okay. I couldn't, <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't shout, I couldn't be mean. I just could I just was too much fun. So I was like, I, they don't take me seriously. I'm like one of them sort of thing. So I worked at it for a year and then I said, oh, you know, what? I'm going to go down the personal training route. And that led to the, the boot camps, the body coach and that sort of thing. But even now, when I go to the schools, I run in and there's a thousand kids. And that is where I feel most alive. That's like, I'm like, this is really what I should be doing. Yeah. And so, is there a sense of trying to sort of help other people, save other people, having almost redeemed yourself or saved yourself? And also kind of trying to be very different to your dad. So you are fit, you're in control of your life. Yeah, the energy for it comes from a desire, I suppose, to like want to help other children who are in that similar position. Mm. So although I don't live in a council house anymore, I'm not on benefits, I can eat nice food and I've got a nice house, I'm still always going to relate to that life and yeah. that chaos and that instability. So, 
you know, I do go to very deprived areas. I do go to places on the outskirts of cities where, you know, 90% of the children are on free school meals. None of the parents are exercising. You know, I went to one school, 10 parents have died in the past year from this school through suicide and addiction. Oh. 10 parents, right? And there's only like 800 kids there. So I'm looking out and I can see, it's almost like I can see the children that are going through trauma because like the crowd's moving and they just like, they stand out, if you know what I mean. You can just see they're withdrawn, they're not smiling, they're unhappy, they're really anxious. And then the workout starts and they sort of, they warm up and then by the end of it, they're doing like star jumps and then they're smiling. And so that's mm. the, that's what I'm trying to achieve is to let people know that you can use your body to shift your mindset and change your reality for a few moments. And, and it, is an, it is an important message. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. 
What inspired you during lockdown really to do those live workouts and, and to really inspire everyone? Well, the original thing was I'd done school tours before and I'd done live workouts online with like a thousand schools, maybe, or a hundred, maybe a thousand schools, maybe 10,000 kids potentially. But on the Monday, I was supposed to go on a, an actual tour of the UK with my brother, Nicky, where it's, it's just me and him in a car. We drive around, we run in, we do the thing, we leave. It's not televised. It's, it's our mission work. If like, and we, we always go back to, cause it connects us to why we're doing it. Why we don't just put our feet up and go, oh, we're done now. You know, it keeps us connected. And so Boris announced on the Thursday, right, we're going into lockdown. I was laying in bed and I remember I WhatsApp Nikki at about midnight because I sort of woke up and I was like, I've got an idea. I'm going to do a live workout Monday called Pee with Joe. I'll stream on YouTube, see who turns up. Yeah. So it was literally the first day. That was on Thursday. Then between Thursday and Monday, I was on BBC News. It was on CNN. Yeah. It's, it's like just loads of different channels picked up and just sort of really promoted it. So the mainstream media really helped a lot with that. And then every single school in the UK put it on their Twitter, their Facebook, their newsletters. It was like, this is the homework. And the reason is yeah. because they trusted me, right? It wasn't like, who's this random guy? It was like 10 years of building trust. They knew that when I went live, I'm going to deliver a session that is safe, not swearing. Yeah. And the children. That is kind. And it is, they just trusted me as a person. Went live. Nikki's on the phone. So I've got the AirPods in. I can just see a camera. I'm literally in front of a camera like this tripod on the camera. I'm in my living room. Joe, this is big. What do you mean? There's 400,000 live streams. There's 500,000, 600. There's 900,000 live connections. So in that moment, I'm about to run on, run in front of the camera. My heart is pounding because I'm like, even if there's two people per room, that's like 2 million, but it's pretty more like 10, 15, 20 million people, right? Yeah. And I, I ran out, did my thing. And like, that was it. 18 weeks went by and I did, a, <laughs> did it every day for like 18 weeks. <laughs> did you ever freeze? Did you think, oh my goodness, there's so many people watching? If I go back to it, I can see my heart's pounding and I'm a little okay. bit nervous. But yeah. as, as I do a few exercises, I settle into it and I'm like, oh, this is what I do anyway. Like, this is fine. Yeah. But it just blew up, didn't it? So what was it like after lockdown? Did you have this kind of sense of loss that that was over? What was it? Yeah, they what talk in- about, you know, like gold medal syndrome where you win a gold medal and you've built up to this moment and then after you feel a bit flat. It's not like depression, mm. but... I just felt like, you know, going from having so much purpose and being valued and every day having a target and a focus, it definitely felt a bit flat for a little mm. while afterwards. Not like that I needed it for like my ego, but more for like just the energy of what I was doing. And I felt so purpose driven that mm. I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, I love this. So when it fizzled out and I sort of hung my boots up, if you like, I did feel a little bit lost for a while. But then again, I just got back into it, started filming again and yeah, it was a really difficult time, but for me, like it anchored me and it gave me something to focus on. So I would say to everyone that took part, you know, thank you for helping me through a lockdown because I was also anxious. I was a bit mm. stressed about it and I missed my family. But having that 9 a.m. start, pee with Joe, you know, jumped in my kit and I was sweating. I was training just as hard as you at home mm. and it made me feel good. So it's like a, it was a win-win really for all of us. And Rosie was so helpful taking part and you know, when I broke my wrist, she came in and helped us one, one day. So it was a proper team effort. And Nikki was there through every single workout. And every day, some days we'd be like, oh, not in the mood for it. And he'd go, come on, Joe, we can do this. And I'd say the same. Nikki, come bring the energy, mm. energy crew. Because we're like televising to like lots of people. We want yeah. to give them a good experience. Did Boris Johnson join in? I don't know. But <laughs> what I did love is, so I saw, firstly, Louis Theroux did all my workouts, bar one, which was like my highlight of my year. But also I saw a little clip from um, William and Kate saying, you know, we haven't quite yet done done, done the <laughs> Joe Wicks work, but everyone else seems to do it. So I thought, wow, like the prince and princess know, know we're doing it. And so like the queen might know, you know. Yeah. And it was like exciting to think that, you know, there's just me 
with a camera in my living room. She could be doing your stretches. Yeah. And there's people like, you know, all over the world doing it. And so it was a very, it was a buzz, wasn't it? it was a bit of a buzz. Mm. Did you get amazing messages from all over the world? I got a box of letters and cards sent to my office. So when it all sort of fizzled out and settled down, I went in one day to read all these letters. And honestly, it was like a bit of a bit of a tsunami of emotion, really, because I up until that point, I didn't accept what was going on. I just worked for it. You know, everyone else was sort of chilling out. I was working so hard, interviews and podcasts and doing the P with Joe. So when I really finally stopped to read all that, and I read the letters, and I, I have them all. I've got, I've got them at home. It's emotional. Mm. Parents, kids, you know, people that lost their wives. It was so mm. emotional. Like, mm. people knitted little, like, scarves for the kids or knitted, like, a picture of me or painted pictures of me. Like, there's, there's so many things mm. that people spent hours, you know, doing these things. So I wanted to keep them. I've got two drawers in my garage, and I just keep adding to it when I do these tours. But that's like when I look back in 20 years' time, I can go, Oh look, that's that's what I did in my time, and it meant something. And it was actually turning a negative into a positive. But like you know, it was one of the few positive things about the pandemic. Yeah, it was. It was a difficult time, but one thing you're guaranteed: if you turn that on at nine a.m., we had a laugh. We yeah. didn't talk about COVID. I never mentioned it. We 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 played around. It was fun, and we all felt a little bit better just for thirty minutes. Mm. That was my mission, really. And do you feel now conscious that people are always looking at your body and they're looking at how fit you are and that you've become this role model? And is that quite difficult or is it quite easy sometimes just to let it slip so people realise that you're normal? Well, I'm really open about my like little blowouts and my binges and stuff because I'm, you know, I'm an emotional eater too. Like I can be really focused, really disciplined, but I also can have a day where I'm stressed and I just go, you know what, self-destruct, smash it, <laughs> chocolate, ice cream, Coke. Do you then see people looking at you saying he's supposed to be really fit? No, not really. But like I would laugh about that like because I love all the foods you love too. Like it doesn't matter what your income is. I love chocolate. I love Ben and Jerry's. I love a burger and chips. So I'm, I, I think what people would love is that when you are realistic and you do show you've had a bit of a blowout and you're really bloated, they go, oh, he's normal. <laughs> but I don't feel pressure to be like lean anymore. I think maybe maybe earlier on in, in, in the career I did, but I think now the narrative shifted so much towards mental health that I really talk about exercise and movement for your mood and energy. The truth is, if you listen to that and you believe that, you will get you will get a bit lean and you will lose a bit of weight because you'll be making better food choices and you'll be more active. So I think the message is similar, but the actual delivery is slightly different in terms of it's just the basics, right? It's like get to sleep a bit earlier, cook more food at home and move a little bit. And because I'm so consistent with that message, whether that's with my Burpee Bears children's book, or a senior workout for, you know, people in, in wheelchairs, it's still the same message, like, get a bit of sleep, move a little bit and try and cook a meal tonight. It's, I think that's why I've grown. I think if I jumped ship and was like, right, fat burners and energy drinks and protein powder <laughs> and this one, and then, you know, like vegan and then it's keto, it's like, you've got to be consistent. And I, I've always been consistent, I think. And that's why my audience has grown and still tune into what I say, I think. Mm. And do you think it's different for men and women? So do you think it's easier if you're a male celebrity than a female one to be less aware or worried about your body? Do you think it's different? Um, You'd be different if you're a woman? I don't know. I went on TV the other day in Ireland, actually, and it was, um, I just finished the tour and I got invited on this show called The Late Late Show. And I sent the producers, and it was only after I thought about this afterwards, but they showed two things, right? One was a photo of me in my top off from like seven years ago. And the other thing was a video of me farting on YouTube. And they didn't <laughs> share the lovely videos of the, I'm getting your kids, I'm getting your mm. nation's kids moving, like beautiful videos of these kids smiling. And so I was a bit let down by the thought that, you know, it was like a really great time to promote the message a little bit. And I did talk about what I wanted to do. The focus is on the wrong things. It's like how I look. And mm. it's, it's like the silly humor stuff. But actually, I'm on a really important mission. So, mm. yeah, I do think sometimes they could focus more on that as opposed to like, let's see Joey's shirt off. 
Mm. But I don't do topless shoots. This is literally seven years ago. <laughs> when I first started, it was like, right, men's get health, your top men's off. fitness, glamour, get your sweat on and mm. do a sexy photo. And it was like, I just did everything I was told to do, basically. Yeah. Now I'm much more like, no, can we do something You've definitely serious? got your top on now. Yeah, yeah, I've got my top on now. And what about drugs like a Zempic that are meant to help fat loss? Do you agree with those or do you think it would be better if we all just did more exercise? I mean, I don't know the science behind those drugs, but... You know, when I see companies that promote healthy diets suddenly jumping on that and distributing and selling them, I think, do you really care about health? Because I, I think it might, it's like a gastric band, you know, it can have a temporary fix mm. on the solution, but it doesn't, affect, it doesn't fix the mind mm. and the brain and you can still overeat and still go back to gaining weight. And you weight. must be quite worried about drugs anyway, that it's just anything you put in your body is probably not as healthy as what you can do. I just think there's always going to be a, sh- people always want a shortcut. People want to have the easy route, but nothing is going to change. Look, even if it does help you lose weight, not going to help you with your emotions mm. your mental health mm. not going to help you with your energy and your sleep so you know there is there are no shortcuts there's there's no drug in the world that's going to really replace exercise and you know I, I watched a great documentary recently um around a psychologist called um Schultz it's called Schultz I think you know he's a doc- he's a he's a psychologist and the first thing he opens up in this documentary is of all the people he's seen of all the people he's treated over the years nothing is more powerful to them than exercise and it really made me think, you know, even someone like this who's probably got can prescribe drugs and all these psychological kind of things, he said movement is the one. Move your body. So do you think people are looking for a kind of shortcut, an easy way by taking these drugs? 100%. Of course, everyone wants a shortcut. Everyone wants a crash diet and a quick, you know, lose two inches in this in two mm-hmm. days and lose 14 pounds in 40 days. But it takes time. It takes a lot of effort to lose mm-hmm. weight. And also keeping off is... There's so many different factors. It's not even just the food you eat. It's the movement. It's the stress levels in your body. It's it's your relationships. It's everything. So I think there's obviously like some use in certain things, but you've got to get try the try exercise and diet first and really give it a go and commit to it. And you know before you turn to like a quick fat loss shake or a, an unsustainable diet because it's not fun enough. There's no way taking a pill that makes you feel full up is going to be enjoyable. Mm. There's mm. just no way on earth. There is that sense, isn't there, that actually it's really hard if you haven't got much cash to eat healthily and to eat well. And how did you feel about that? Did you know that when you were a child that you didn't have much cash? It just Was it like another sort of obstacle to overcome? Or what was it like? Because it, it's very hard to know or any different from any other child, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's a huge thing. You know, I'm so conscious of this. And I also, I'm always trying to push the, the boundaries on like, what is a budget meal, you know, and finding out what does it mean for people. So I did a poll recently on my Instagram asking, you know, people with kids, essentially, like, what's your average weekly spend? And You'd be blown away. Like some of the some of the people messaged me saying, "I've got twenty five pounds a week for me and my two kids." The other end, you know, might be sort of fifty quid up to one hundred and more extreme, more affluent people had like two hundred twenty five quid a week. So it's really varied in terms of my audience. But I'm always trying to push that and trying to think, right? Can I create budget recipes that are really affordable and really accessible? But my my diet was terrible. I mean, this is nineteen ninety. You know, like it was frozen ready meals. I talk about crispy pancakes, potato waffles, smiley faces. Turkey, turkey beans, Twizzlers. Turkey Twizzlers, you know, tin frankfurters and frozen chicken pies. And it was all frozen. It was, mm. but you know, I survived and I'm healthy now. It's not the end of the world, but it's trying to find ways that you can still cook healthy on a budget. And it is a challenge because, and, and especially when you, certain parts of the UK you go to, there's just no choice. It's like processed or ultra processed foods, you know. And so it's trying to educate on around things, you know, the small little swaps, you know, and don't beat beat yourself up if you can't give your kids a really healthy, nutritious meal. Because I tell you what, my diet was awful, and I was a very fussy eater. But as the years have gone on, you know, I'm I'm able to eat slightly different, and I've got more, I'm, I'm more adventurous in my food. But you know, I think there's pressure to like you see people on Instagram like, well, I can't give my kids 
avocado on toast and I can't have fresh berries, but you know, you can get frozen berries. There's, there's mm. options to still have these things. And you know, there's nothing wrong with frozen veg and tins, you know, just, I think planning is important. If you try and plan your meals for the week ahead, you might be able to sort of do things on a budget, mm. I think. Mm. And how much do you think the fact you've done cookbooks is related to your mum's eating disorder? Do you think you're in, in a way trying to resolve some of those issues or, or not? I think, I think that was just such an accidental thing. You know, yeah. I was literally in my flat with my phone and I just thought, oh, I've got this idea. In with the Lucy B. In with the, <laughs> in with the midget trees. In with the chicken. Little bit of soy sauce. Throw in the noodles. Crushed garlic. And that right there is lean in 15. That was it. It was just a simple idea. I had no idea I was going to sell 4 million books. You know, my, <laughs> my publisher's in this building. Harper Collins in this building, right? So I sit in meetings and I go, I've sold 4 million books <laughs> from an idea on Instagram. But it was very unintentional. It's definitely not a deep sort of yeah. psychological connection there. But... I'm proud of that. I'm proud that I got. I'm proud that I've got people moving, and I'm proud that I've got people cooking because it's two things that are hard in this world with technology and people being so stressed and so busy. I'm so glad that I, I, I've managed to take what I love and create a business and also help people mm. because I've always loved getting people moving from from when I was a personal trainer, you know, getting twenty pound a session to like releasing a cookbook or doing a DVD or even doing school stores. It's the same thing. I just want to get you moving. Mm. And so obviously I've had amazing opportunities, but it wasn't like this thought out strategic decision to build and like sell and make a massive business. It was really just connect and inspire. And I think when you do that on a big scale, obviously great opportunities come from that. Mm. And do you think the government should be doing more to promote health and anti-obesity measures? So for for instance, they backed away from the watershed advertising ban and they backed away from various of the measures. Do you think the government should be doing more? And what do you think about the idea of the nanny state as a bad thing? I think they should be doing a lot more. Yeah, and it breaks my heart when I see that campaign that Jamie's pushing over the door, you know, like, so pushing over the line, and then the next day they like change their mind, and he's got to come and say, "I'm really sorry, guys. They've they've turned their mind. They've, they've turned that. It's like it doesn't make sense, and it's one of the reasons I'm reluctant to work with government because what I do has an impact. Mm. I do it, I feel it, I see it, and I love it, and it's and it energizes me to keep going. If I was a part of a massive campaign that I was pushed for years and years, and then suddenly oh he's out, he's out, he's down the road, and there's someone else, and I've got to convince them and go through it all again, mm. that p- personally would dishearten me. But you know, we do have to have. We need people that care. We need people, to, and also. Some people just will never relate to that low-income family who really can't afford healthy food, who really has no access to sports clubs and after-school clubs. You know, so it's like I don't know what the answer is really, but I just feel like government and politicians don't feel really connected to the, the average person, and they're not relatable. So how can they ever really have compa- enough love and compassion? Like the, the compassion I've got is real, yeah. And when I share, it's because I share from the heart. Whereas if you've never been in that environment or even know what that's like living in a really like on benefits in a low-income council state what you see is poor people you know get sicker and more unhealthy and so it's like it has to be has to be addressed all the money spent at the end isn't it like at the drugs and the rehab and the kind of the cures and the operations and the and at the end of the issue but how how about if you flip some of that to the start and you just pumped a bit of that to the start of the issue maybe you're going to prevent these things mm. and have you ever smoked or vaped and do you think it's a good idea now that we're, oh we're don't stopping children, please don't my you? little brother vapes and i hate it and i really want him to stop but he used to smoke cigarettes i'm happy that he's not doing that but i watched the panorama dispatches on on the vaping thing and i was like it's everywhere man kids like one in four kids or whatever was doing it in school and mm. yeah i mean it's there's just so many so many things it's the system it's not just one per- you can't blame anybody particular but I think government have to have legislation and like 
penalize these companies and say, no, you're not going to get away. You're not going to get our, give up. You're not getting our kids smoking vapes. Mm. You're not going to get our kids eating these foods and stuff like But, you know, when you look at the system, like I'm reading that book at the moment I was saying called Ultra Processed People, and you realize that Big Food Inc. is so powerful. Mm. And like the only way we can counteract it really is by getting in the kitchen and cooking and not letting them feed us mm. every day. Because mm. when you leave the house with no food in your hands, you are going to be eating ultra processed foods. And it's fine in moderation, but every day, you know, they'll get you. It'll, it'll catch you, it'll cost you, and it's going to make you overweight and unhealthy. So I think we have to just really take control of our own lives and just buy some whole ingredients, get back in the kitchen, and just cook old school, make some food, make a bolognese or a pasta or whatever. And you talked about how you were homeschooling your children. First of all, how's that going? But also, do you cook with them every day? So it's only really affecting my older daughter, Indy. She went to school last year, which she loved, but we've sort of taken her out because we still want to do a bit more traveling and we love being together. But Rosie, my my wife, she went into modeling, but she wanted to become a school teacher. I've always wanted to be a school teacher. So when I look at it, I don't see it as this thing like, this is really stressful. I love teaching Indie Spanish. So we're learning Spanish together. So you've got to have the mindset of wanting to kind of teach. And obviously not everyone is able to do it, but I, I love it. I love being with them and we, we split the task. So I'll do PE, take them on bike rides, <laughs> do sport, obviously. And I'm doing Spanish with Indy and I'm teaching the guitar. And then, you know, we, Rosie would do like phonics and sort of number work. And then I do the cooking. So I, I do love getting them in the kitchen. So, mm. you know, they want to cook me every day, but they can annoy me. And I say, look, can you go and watch TV or come back in 20 minutes? <laughs> Depends what mood I'm in mm. and if I'm making a video for Instagram. But yeah, I think these are really important life skills. You know, teaching mm-hmm. your children to, you know, move their bodies and exercise and to cook and enjoy food. That is the most important skills because when they're out in the big old world, that's all they really need. Mm. They don't need to be really good at algebra. I mean, I've never used my maths in English. That <laughs> mean, maybe you could argue the PE helped me, but I think I think it's important to get those life skills, understand money. Like, what does it mean to have a credit card? What does it mean to, you know, to be in debt, to get a mortgage? Like basic things that even now as an adult, I'm only just learning about. Like, because we're not kind of taught these things, especially from a working class family. We don't know about money. We don't understand how this works. We don't understand a lot of things, and so getting these things into curriculum and also teaching kids to cook in school. Bring it back. Bring bring back home ec where you learn how to make a muffin or an omelette. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's amazing. I teach my kids the most basic of things, but now I honestly think if I left Indy, she could cook herself dinner. Yeah. And she's five years old. Like, <laughs> she, might, she might make a mess, but she could she could make an omelette or cook Meg on toast because I've done it with her so many times. And yeah, I, I do think that part of the education system is probably lacking in terms of the life skills and the mental health conversation around how important it is to move your body. Mm. And where do you want to go in the next few years with the family? So there's this rumor that we're going to live in America. It's not true. We've had a house in America for six years and we sort of, every winter we go there for a couple of months. So we're going back over there in a few weeks time. But it's just, when I'm there, what I love about it is I'm unknown. Nobody knows me. I'm just on the beach with the kids, completely normal dad. Don't have to be doing social media. And so I like the contrast, but... Do you um, worry more about what they eat there? Because they do eat more often, don't they? I just think the same issue is happening all over the world. We're moving less, we're eating really unhealthy food and it's leading to diet-related diseases and mental health issues. Because I I would never talk years ago, if you eat junk food, it's going to affect your mental health. Mm. You can become anxious, you can become depressed. Because I just would not know that and didn't have the confidence. But I now know the science there to show that the gut and the brain are directly linked. And if you continue to eat these foods, you are bringing yourself down into a low state. And so Mm. we can eat ourselves healthy if we're willing to just cut out some of this stuff. And I'm not an, I'm not an all-or-nothing guy. I'm not saying cut it all out because I will never give up my ice cream and chocolate. <laughs> but just by reducing it a little bit and saying, you know what, tonight I'm going to have a bit of fruit instead, it's a positive thing. So, and you've just um, been on a fast, haven't you? 
I did a little, yeah, only, only um, because I was in Ireland and I was on the on the road and my options were like, it was basically like Greg's, it was ready meals, it was fast food at petrol stations. And I just thought, I'm just going to have a little fast, see how I feel for the day. And I went to bed a little bit hungry and a little bit grumpy. But the next morning I woke up with so much energy, so focused. My my tummy felt great. And so, yeah, I did it for three days and I got back straight back to my food, you know. And before you know it, I was eating a bar of Tony's Chocoloni. Like, it's not forever, but I did like that I gave my gut a rest and it felt good. So, yeah, definitely worth trying. I, I don't know about three days fast quite quite a long time, but... Mm. If you ever want to try like a little eight-hour window or six-hour window, it's good to give your digestion a little bit of time to rest. It's, it's a positive thing for your health, I think. And do you find exercise addictive? I'm just what do you think? In a way, it's turning the addiction that your father had into something sort of positive that you're you're doing. Do you yeah. think it is? Does it give you a buzz? It definitely can have an addictive element for some people, but for me, it's like a habit and it's just second nature. So, on days I exercise, I'm happier, and I'm a better dad. I'm calmer. I'm nicer to be around. And I'm more ambitious and focused. I think it just elevates my mood. So people say, you're always happy. You're always positive. You're always optimistic and motivated. Yeah, because I go to bed and I exercise and I wake up. Mm. That's the secret ingredient, you know. And so I'm always trying to keep on that on that sort of level level playing field. But again, I don't wake up feeling motivated. It's just I know at the end of it, at the end of the movement, that's where the energy is. That's where the motivation comes from. So um, I don't Do you think find I'm... it easier now with an audience to exercise? Or can you exercise on your own? Do you actually no. get more of a buzz if you... People are watching, do you think? No. So when I do my videos, I don't really do many lives anymore. I've got the app, which is obviously pre-recorded. But if I've been filming all day and I'm filming, say, five 15-minute workouts, I still have to train afterwards because I need to train for me. Like I need to just not be – because it's a performance, isn't it? Like I'm like talking all the way through it. Mm. I just want to have half an hour mine with no camera, whack the music on, and just train for myself. So it's weird. A lot of personal trainers say that. They'll be in a gym all day training clients, but then they have to go to another gym to work out because they can't be in their gym. And so I find that sometimes where I just have to work out or get outside, get out of the house. And why do you think you've managed to stay so positive when actually some people from a similar childhood would have gone off the rails or found it really hard, like the, the boys in the house next to you? Yeah. What do you think made story. that difference? I think it's, um, I don't know, just making a decision that like I, I just want to want to be positive. I want to be optimistic and mm. I don't want to like resent my parents. I could sit here and scream and shout why my dad was a bad dad or my mum was a bad mum and why they, why they didn't do certain things right. But ultimately, I, I just look at who I am. Who am I today? Why am I like this? And, I, and you know, it's my mum and dad. Like they were the most biggest influence on my life. So, you know, for good or bad, I learned from my dad. And for good or bad, I learned from my mum. I'm a good husband and I love my kids. And so I think, like I said, it's just, you, you just have that kindness through you, which comes from your parents. If you were, re- I was never treated really bad. You know, there was a bit of shouting, but not physically abused or, you know, told I was stupid or you're not worth anything. I was always praised. I was always, so I think I felt confident in myself, even though my mum and dad were all over the shop, they still built our self-confidence up, I think. Mm. You know, you can be what you want. You can, you know, we love you as you are. You're, you know, you're perfect sort of thing. So that's the most important thing. I think childhood trauma can be very destructive, but actually if you look at a lot of successful entrepreneurs or people that you might respect, they've all, they've often had a pretty difficult childhood or some Mm. kind of adversity. You know, even when I speak to Gordon Ramsay and Jamie Oliver on my podcast, you know, they had challenges and they went on to do great things. So Mm. it's not always this like really simple, happy childhood that brings successful people in their fields. I think sometimes actually having it tougher can make you really, really, really successful later on in life. Mm. And what about your wife, Rosie? Does that also help having a partner that can sort of stabilize you? I think I met Rosie at the perfect time. You know, I was 30 when I met Rosie. So like just when things were kicking off, like my first book came out I met Rosie literally like the day before my first book came out. And so 
I had this like love and this stability and, and also like, you know, someone that was there for me who watched me grow. I wasn't like famous with loads of money in my bank and partying and out doing the whole red carpet thing. Like I just had this like really perfect life that I wanted to maintain. And so, yeah, she, she's anchored me and for sure helped me, I think, be successful because if I didn't have her and I didn't connect with her like I did, I might not have had kids. I might, I might have been a bit more wild. I might have been out in be for every summer and, you know, just not not being as focused at work. So I think the family unit and having that stability definitely helps keep me keep me focused, I think. So looking back to yourself as a child, perhaps the day you received that letter from your dad and the teacher threw it into the bin, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? What do I wish I'd known? I suppose knowing that your your life and your reality yeah. right now, it feels like this is forever, but it will change. You know, things can change and you're always going to be evolving and growing and how your mum is now is very different. Like if you met mum say, you'd never think she was someone who would ever scream and shout or that my dad was ever, you know, using drugs. You just think, wow, like it's just not who you'd imagine mm. because people change. So people change and grow. Just believe that things can improve and that your life can open up. It's not like this insular thing where you're so alone and you can't talk about it. So yeah, anyone that's listening, like the world feels quite small, but actually when you grow, you know, it's bigger and you can do more things and you can set yourself some goals and achieve more than you think. So yeah, keep keep moving forward. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest today, Joe Wicks. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.